Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Market Impact Insights. You know, there's been a lot of focus, a lot written about customer experience. And by focusing on customer experience, the competitive advantages that companies can achieve. But today, we're going to explore a huge untapped opportunity to focus on employee experience. And my guest today has written a book that really brings into greater clarity the opportunity for companies to focus more on their employees' experience, how that can improve customer experience, and together propel companies to competitive advantage. Tiffany Bova is a global growth evangelist at Salesforce. She's also the author of a Wall Street Journal bestselling book. This is her new book, The Experience Mindset, Changing the Way You Think About Growth. Her previous book, Growth IQ, was also a Wall Street Journal bestseller and has been translated into 12 languages. Tiffany is also ranked on the current Thinkers 50 list, the world's top management thinkers. That's twice. She's also the host of What's Next with Tiffany Bova, a top-ranked podcast on iTunes. Tiffany has been named one of Inc. Magazine's 37 sales experts you need to follow on Twitter, a top 100 women in tech. And she's also inspired leaders around the world through delivery of over 850 keynote presentations on sales transformation and business model innovation. She's reached more than half a million people on six continents. Prior to her current position at Salesforce, she was also a senior executive in the areas of sales, marketing, and customer service for startups, Fortune 500 companies. And she was recognized as one of the first to develop a very robust go-to-market model for cloud-based solutions and indirect channel strategies to accommodate changes in buying behavior. What I love about Tiffany is her focus on inspiring people to get smarter about the choices they make. So we're going to dive into this, her new book. I've read it. It's amazing. And it's going to teach us a lot. Tiffany, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What a kind introduction. Thank you. So, Tiffany, one of the things is I was going through your book that was really impressive is you were bringing the power of specific data and research uh, behind uh, a lot of the um, assertions and, and, and the opportunities that you talk about in the book. And so I'd like to go back and just ask you personally, what sparked your interest, your passion around this whole area of research and analytics? Oh, I don't know if I knew that I should be doing that, or it was an an accidental benefit, I think. Um, It was maybe 18 years ago now, uh, and I was running uh, and leading a division of a Fortune 500 company, um, sales service and marketing for it. And I was just burnt out. And I didn't know sort of what I wanted to do next. But I knew I really enjoyed the sort of 
figuring out how to solve problems from a business perspective, like how to grow or how to increase market share or share of wallet or recruit new partners or, you know, those kinds of things. Like what's the, you know, what's the work problem? What's the challenge? And then how could we potentially solve it? And even iterating really quickly. And I'm using terms now like this fast failing and that I know now, which I didn't know then, you know what I mean? It was just sort of, how do I, how do I work my way through it? And we were doing a project and we had a couple of analysts and consulting uh, companies come in, the McKenzie's and Bain's and Gartner's and Forrester and IDC's of the world. And I realized, huh, maybe that's what I need to do next. I mean, that that's kind of how it accidentally happened, not knowing how much research actually had to go into the position, if you will. So lo and behold, I landed at Gartner, started out as a research director, was there a decade and ended as a research fellow. Um, covering sales transformation and a lot of things we're going to talk about today. Uh, and I had to really learn how to embrace data and research and approach it in a much more methodical way. So I don't know if I would call myself a researcher other or, or just an accidental researcher who realized right that, that I needed some data to back up what I was saying if I really wanted executives, especially of large organizations, to pay attention. You know, Tiffany, I have to ask you, because it's really interesting, because you had this um, corporate impact, corporate success, and then you you made that shift over into more of the analyst role. Was that challenging at all? Was there anything unexpected? Because you're kind of shifting from decision-making inside of an organization, and now you're in more of a thought leader, consultative role. But uh, I'm just curious, was what was that transition like? So it took me about two years to really find my footing and that sounds like a long time, you know, because Gartner hung on to me and I hung on to them. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's not that I yeah. wasn't performing. It's that I didn't necessarily know how to do it. And so early, I was just a sponge for collaboration so that I could sort of learn from those around me. But I'll give you one moment. It was literally my first day, like not my first week or first month or first year. Like it was my first day. And it was an offsite for all the Gartner analysts and, and all of the salespeople. We were in Florida. So there was like 1,200 analysts and a couple thousand salespeople. And we were in one ballroom. And then like, you know, two ballrooms down was all the salespeople. And again, my entire career, to your point, I was always with the sales teams. You know, that was sort of my comfort zone. But no, lo and behold, I'm with the analysts. So the head of uh, research was standing on stage, you know, it was sort of mid morning and I didn't know anybody. I knew the people who had interviewed me, but in a room of 1100 people, you know, I knew no one, you know what I mean? Like, so I was sitting in the back row, which was pretty normal for me <laughs> sitting in the back row and just sort of observing. Um, and the head of research at the time said a joke. He had a slide up mm -hmm. and said a joke about a philosopher. And so the philosopher's quote was up on the screen and everyone asked me who it was. And I don't remember, unfortunately, but it was a, it was a philosopher. He tells a joke and like the whole room laughs and I didn't get the joke. So I was like, uh Oh, right. And then maybe 15 minutes later, you know, we have like a break in the analyst room and the sales team, the you know, sales group, a couple doors down, they have a break in their conference. And it's like playing the Rocky theme and they're like clapping uh -huh, yeah, and laughing. Yeah. And I, right. And I'm like looking through the separators, you know, of the ballroom doors. And I'm like, 
have I made a really terrible mistake? <laughs> you like, so wanted to go through those doors, didn't you? You wanted yeah, to go over like, Am I in the wrong room? Um, and so it, it was it was jarring for me. Like it, it was jarring. And so it, it did take time. Uh, and I think that once I once I found how I could use things that I was really good at and then figure out how to partner on things that maybe I wasn't very good at early on. And that proved to be a great way for me to lean into this completely different uh, sort of way of working and also role and job and expectations. I mean, it, it couldn't have been any more different for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just embracing the, that change or taking that change on and, and, and being in kind of a, a learning journey um, is what it sounds like there. And so let's, let's dive into this, this new book because um, you make a really compelling case that successful companies will not only understand, but they'll embrace this relationship between customer experience and employee experience and how optimizing both together really is, is going to create some magic. And it makes so much sense in terms of the argument that you lay out there, but we know so many companies haven't yet gotten there. They haven't made that commitment. What are some of the big challenges you think are the blockers as to why more companies just haven't gotten this and, and started running with it? Look, I'm going to give a little bit of background because I think the context matters in that question. Um, in, it was back in 2008. I was at Gartner and, and I was part of the team that made the prediction that the chief marketing officer would spend more on technology than the chief information officer. And for those of you listening that are close at all to IT or marketing, you know how absolutely out of left field that statement would have been. And also how many people would have thought we were totally crazy because of it. But a handful of vendors, you know, the Microsoft, SAP, Oracle, and Salesforces of the world all went out and bought marketing technology companies to get their hands on, right, the capabilities that this new budget would be spending on tech. And especially if it was sort of close to their core, like in the Salesforce example, right? They've got sales cloud, marketing cloud makes sense. So it wasn't that we thought Tech, it was about the technology, although, by the way, it wasn't about search engine optimization or buying digital ads or any of that. It really was about buying hardware, software, networking, hiring reference architects and UI designers. It really was standing up almost their own stack. And it was because we believed customer experience was going to be the next battleground between brands, especially as companies commoditized, as technology democratized access to you know, supply chains and manufacturers in other parts of the world. Commerce was happening very, very quickly. Um, while still only 2008, there was definitely a shift happening. Fast forward, you know, I leave, I leave Gartner. I write my first book, Growth IQ. It was 10 paths to growth. The very first path was customer experience. And it was like, look, they're your true north. You know, live and die on the hill of your customer. It's always about the customer, customer centric, customer first, you know, all the terms we've all heard. And I think in that chapter, I think I mentioned employee a half a dozen times. And in a 60,000 word book, I think I, I used 100, 150 words to talk about employees. Mm -hmm. So I missed it altogether. I mean, it was just, you know, I'd been, as you said, right, I'd been running a practitioner operating leader for sales, marketing and customer service. I was a people leader. I then was, you know, an analyst and I was advising around best ways to growth, but it was really in the operating side of the house. I, I'm not a people or a culture expert at all, still not. 
but when I came to Salesforce, I stood on stage and I made this statement. I said, I didn't think it was a coincidence. Salesforce is a great place to work pretty much globally. It's uh, one of the most innovative companies in the world, and it's the fastest growing enterprise software company. I said, I didn't think that was a coincidence. If you have a really strong culture, you might innovate faster. You innovate faster, you grow faster, right? If you have a really strong culture, you go that extra mile, not only for your customers, but for fellow employees, right? It is this very powerful uh, capability if everybody understands their role and value in the greater goals of the organization, right? It's about customer success, but we have to make sure internally is working appropriately, right? In order to achieve that goal of customer success. So again, I'm not the first to ever say happy employee, happy customer, get that right, right? Grow faster. But, but I'd say we were probably one of the few and we went out and, you know, looked at, at what had others had said who have actually proved that. So I went to our CMO at the time and I said, let's do some research on this. And so that started my journey for two years on uncovering what are the greatest aspects of employee experience for customer experience at that moment that matters when a brand touches a customer in some way, online, offline, analog, human, could be the packaging of a product, could be an FAQ online, could be a salesperson, a service a field service representative, right? A technical support person, anything like that. And even the cleaning crews, right? The marketing organization, it doesn't have to have direct connection to a customer. All of a sudden it unlocked this complete miss I had in Growth IQ as well that I'd been talking about customer experience too narrowly for like a decade. So, you know, it was, it was a, a great opportunity for me to start to use the insights I had gathered over the time around customer experience and really understand the role of employee there. So I, I wanted to set a little bit of context because, you know, I'd been on such a long customer experience journey without the other side of the same coin, which is employee. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, this opportunity, it, it's for all types of companies, right? You, you bring up really interesting examples in the book from retail, from manufacturing, from technology. So this isn't just something that applies to technology companies. This is something that is real uh, for companies in any kind of uh, product or service offering. Absolutely. And I grounded in this one quote, the fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get employees to love their job, period. So I don't care if you're in healthcare, retail, manufacturing, insurance, technology, hospitality, I don't care. If you have employees and you have customers, this is important. Yeah, it's a, it's a universal truth. Now, you've also outlined a model when we think about organizations, uh, this, this model around people, process, technology, culture. And that's been around for a while, the, the concept of those kinds of dimensions. And of course, um, thinking about uh, the actual uh, processes, even things like hiring decisions, the people decisions you're making about people coming in, um, how leaders live the experiences of their people. I mean, all, you, you bring in all of these sorts of dimensions to be thinking about as an opportunity. Can you maybe share some examples you know, within those different dimensions, maybe some compelling examples that you've seen firsthand that uh, where companies have really embraced and are making a difference? 
by by putting the right focus behind it. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, the people process technology, it's PPT, otherwise known as from the 60s, from Harold Liebet. Uh, he created the Liebet Triangle around people process and tech. And he believes sort of it has to start with the people and then the process and then the technology. I added culture because I think there is enough differentiation between culture and people, right? People are the individuals who say, back to your question, right? Am I, you know, is the company I work for investing in my career development? You know, do I feel psychological safety and raising my hand, you know, and saying something is wrong? Do I feel um, that they're investing in training for me? Uh, really the, you know, is it organizationally, set up so that we all can be successful. That's really the people side of it. Culture might be something like, um, how do they approach training, right? Or how do they approach feedback loops from employees? Do they listen to their employees? Do they not listen to their employees? Like that's not an individual contributor. That is a cultural thing. Or, you know, if, if you're an individual contributor right on the people access, you say, I want career development, but culturally they don't invest in talent. There's a disconnect. So that's why I separated those two and, and felt that culture was a good addition. If we go to process, you know, I'll give an example of a company um, out of Canada that I was working with a number of months back, and it took 20 minutes to do a return over the phone for a customer. So that is a process issue, right? Some of it was it was manual processes mixed with digital processes mixed with, I have to go get approval from a manager. I have, right. And so that popping in and out of what I have online, what I have to do offline. So the process was not seamless. It wasn't integrated. All the buzzwords we use, right. There was a ton of friction in it. And the result of that was it took 20 minutes to do a return, which I think we could all agree is not a great people experience, right. For the person in the call center, they wake up every day and go, Ooh, I can't wait today. I'm going to do 20 returns. Yay. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. that that's not very motivating or inspiring. And they're stuck in the mud of all these broken processes they have to navigate through. And then going back to culture, they maybe they raise their hand and say, this isn't working and no one's listening. Right. So that's the sort of people process culture. Then when you get to technology, uh, there was many years ago, it was all the way back in 2001 and two, when I was uh, really early in the World Wide Web now, then the internet, now the cloud, you know, as far as what people call it, what, how they view it. And, you know, back then we worked really hard to make sure that online was not a very complicated process. So, for example, we worked hard to get to two clicks or three clicks for a customer to buy something. But when it first started, you know, it was like eight or 10 clicks on this thing called a website, right? No one knew they were just sort of replicating like a, you know, a yellow page ad and putting it online or a mailer and putting it online, right? They were using it as a sort of digital catalog, if you will, not necessarily for commerce. And so as it started to shift to commerce, it was, well, how do you take this ad, right? And then what do you do, just put a buy now button or do you have to tell them what the product is, right? And all of a sudden it was 10 clicks to do something. So we worked very hard to get it down to two or three. Now you could argue it's one click or it's voice, right? Order something <laughs> and, it, and it happens. So think back to that and let's ask this question. Would we ever as companies ask our customer to have one tab open to find out about the product? 
go to another tab to order the product, another tab to enter credit card information, another tab to enter shipping information, and another tab to check the shipping time, right? To get the shipping information and then be able to track the shipment. Would you ever ask a customer to have five tabs open to do that? That's insanity. Okay. I would hope so. However, unfortunately, we ask our employees to do that every single day because the systems are not always integrated. So an enterprise has an average of more than a thousand unique applications inside its four walls. And, you know, if you work from home, the quote unquote, uh, figurative four walls, not uh-huh. literal four walls, That's right. right? And only 27% of those are integrated. Now, some of them like HR and finance, no one, you know, not everyone needs access, but let's just talk about the things that need that connection, that integration, right? Like that 20 minute return example I gave you. If the technology isn't talking to each other in some way, you might have information in the sales system that's different than the marketing system that's different than the service system. So if a customer calls in the tech support line, tech support doesn't have access to the latest information that they purchased because that's in the sales system. And so they're like, I I don't see you've ordered anything from us. I think we've all been in those situations, Mm -hmm. right? Or you're sitting on hold for 15 minutes to get a call center rep is that because there isn't enough people? Is it because it's a 20 minute return? So calls take longer, right? And they can't get to calls fast enough. Is it because the technology isn't available to say, hey, we've got a long hold time, enter your number, we'll call you back. While that's irritating for consumers, it's better than sitting on hold and listening to hold music for 15 minutes. Yes, so at is. least you can kind of go on with something and then the phone rings and then you can get your get help, right? And so just in those examples right there, I just highlighted, right? People process tech and culture, how it has an impact on that employee. And then lo and behold, what I just said, right? If the employee has to bounce from system to system, what happens? The customer time increases, their experience decreases. The effort for the employee increases and even potentially the effort for the customer increases. But for all intent and purposes, we have spent the royal we, we have spent billions of dollars globally over the last 20 years on improving customer experience, journey mapping, tools, systems, processes, net promoter scores, right, customer advisory boards, et cetera. Yet we have not done the same for employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really mind-blowing. And you know, as you were sharing that example, Tiffany, I think we all can relate to this as consumers. I think the customer support representative talk about the unsung heroes in organizations, because think about these heroics that I'm sure that they are and stuff that we can't even see they're dealing with behind the scenes, but yet, you know, they have to pull that off with grace if they're representing the brand well, and they do it with grace and patience and all that. But, um, it's, uh, it's a challenge, uh, for sure. And, um, and it really kind of leads us to the question around this whole employee experience and how to improve it of the role of senior leadership. And you've talked a little bit about why C-suite collaboration is essential. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, you know, it it is this, it is this interesting phenomena. When I did the first round of research, we did um, US only publicly traded companies because we were trying to get our hands on information that was publicly available. In the first study we did, we did it with Forbes Insight. 
And what we found was companies that were good at both customer and employee experience had a growth rate of 1.8 times faster than those companies that did not have both of those things working well. So for a billion dollar brand, it was like a $40 million impact. That got us, you know, got the interest peaked, right? Maybe we're onto something here. If we could only understand what parts and pieces of employee experience have the greatest impact on customer. So we went out and did a second study, which was a global study um, across uh, 14 or 15 countries. And, and that really started to uncover what aspects of employee had that greatest impact. And then we wanted a case study where we could show causation, which we did in retail, which we can get into the sort of ROI in a second. But the reason I, I wanted to share that there were three studies was when I started to share these with round, round table conversations, this is sort of at the tail end of, at least in the US, of kind of lockdowns uh, around the pandemic. So it was sort of the tail end of 21-ish. Um, and when I would share this with executives, and it was mostly you know heads of either CEOs, COOs, if they were larger organizations, heads of HR, sales, marketing, customer success or customer service, CIO, IT, didn't have a lot of CFOs, but that was sort of the community. I heard these three, three comments. One, if it's so obvious, why isn't everyone doing it? And I think going back to what I was saying, look, I'm not the first to say happy employee, happy customer, get that right, right? I mean, Richard Branson said it, Herb Kelleher said it. I mean, so many people have said it, like I am not the first. And I would say back, well, if it's so obvious, is it obvious in your organization? Most executives would be like, well, you know, I think we do a good job with our employees. And so I'd start sharing some of the stats and you could see them go, huh, you know, I wonder <laughs> if I am completely misinformed here, right? Like something as simple as nobody owns employee experience. Someone owns HR, but HR and employee experience are not the same thing. HR has pieces and parts of the employee experience but not all the things we just talked about, right? They have no say in what tools they use or what training they have or, you know, how the processes are built or, you know what I'm saying? Like how, yeah. like you said, you hope that that call center person, no matter what, answers the phone with grace and is kind. Well, hopefully the culture rewards that kind of behavior, you know, even if, right? And so, look, I want to show up and be kind, but by my, you know, the fourth hour of customers yelling at me, I'm not so kind anymore. <laughs> like, you know, they yeah. feel like, <laughs> right. So, so that first one was, if it's so obvious, so no one owns it. And then the second one, which was, or within that, no, uh, nobody owns it, uh, is that they would survey employees and that they didn't know what to do with the data that they collected. So if it's so obvious, why isn't everyone doing it? Well, they don't know they have a problem if they're not doing anything with the data. No one owns employee experience. So if it's so obvious, they're just making an assumption that that one first section I just talked about was happening and happening consistently in X scale and all of the things that, that would go behind that. And that's where I think I started to get people's attention. Mm -hmm. The second one was... Um, if, you know, sort of if no one owns it, you know, what is uh, what is the return? What is the return on that investment? And, you know, that to me is a very look back question. That is a well, 
someone has to own it because then I have to create a new siloed group that doesn't collaborate very well. It's about headcount and budget. Yeah. It's about right all of the things that go into someone quote unquote owning it. And they start looking for the metrics because if there's no metrics, then how do I know the investments are paying off? And all really great questions, but that's also very much an expert's mind. I know how to launch a new division in our company or a new group in our company. We follow the same roadmap we always have. And it, and it doesn't serve us well. It's what got us in this position. So I need kind of that beginner's mind. Hence why I called the book, The Experience Mindset. It wasn't about creating a new role or a new division. It was about thinking completely differently about when you make decisions for customer that you stop for a second and consider what are the implications to your employees? Does it make their lives better or worse? Does it make them do more work or less work? Does it streamline something they're doing today? Or is it so focused on the customer that you're basically saying to your employee, tough beans, right? Like too bad for you. We are customer first, customer centric. The rest doesn't matter. And that's where I started to really see people go. There is opportunity. We are missing something so obvious because we just assumed it was happening and happening the way we expected. And lo and behold, through the research, we found it was not. Yeah, I think we can all relate to massive data collection. And then sometimes, right, I've seen this in organizations where there's almost this catharsis because you've, you've collected so much. And what do we do with this all? And so the interpretation and then committing, this is back to the senior leadership, it seems like the key is crossing that bridge from you know, swimming in data to committing to very tangible actions that can be measured right over time and adjusted. And that's that sometimes that's a huge bridge to kind of get over that that last piece. Well I'd say that I when I get a chance to have this conversation with executives and they give me um, going back to like I think your very first question, really digging into the data. When I was an executive, when I was still an executive in, in the way, you know, sort of people manager, right, running a PL and and revenue, that kind of leader. I used to, what's the right term? How would I say that? I, I used to state my case, argue my case emotionally. And people listening might be well, like, you know, not, a, not unusual, right? Uh -huh. But I learned at the tail end after that project that I had done with the consulting firm that I said, you know, kind of exposed me to this other part of, you know, the, the, the working community that might work for me, right? Um, was they dug in with assumptions that the executives agreed to and started using numbers and data, you know what I mean? And even though we got to the same conclusion, like I said, the sky is blue, right? And the, the leadership team goes, mm, I don't think the sky is blue, right? Go away and prove it, right? Did a consulting project, you know, with, with uh, you know, consulting organization, they come in, they do all their modeling and blah, 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 you know what I mean? It's lots of money. The, the sky is blue. We show up to the executive team, the sky is blue. They go, great, the sky is blue. I learned a really key lesson there that I had to find a way to back it up, right? Even though right. in my gut, I believe yeah. it to be right. And not that I'm always right, like that wasn't it. It was that in my experience, I really believed it was right. It might not have been the color blue that I said, but it was in the hue of blue. You know what I'm saying? It was directionally correct. We could have learned and we could have gotten there faster, but it was a lesson 
that has stuck with me for, you know, 20 years. So, you know, I would say that in this particular case, whenever I get an executive in front, in front of me and I have an opportunity to talk about this, I can see their hesitation. I can see their expert's mind show up, which is, you know, they start to get uncomfortable and they almost stop listening. You know what I mean? It's like you could see them just tune right out because I'm saying something that they either don't believe, don't agree with, tried it, it failed sometime. It's not the way they do it there, whatever their talk track is. And so now I just approach it the following way. I ask them, what are your top three to five metrics for customer now? And so they'll go, we have a net promoter score of this. We have customer satisfaction score of that. We track customer effort score. We track customer churn rates. You know, if you're in a recurring revenue business, we track share of wallet, recency of purchase, right? They can rattle it all off, right? No problem. They don't even blink. Just rattle it off. And then I'll say, are any of those metrics tied to executive compensation? It's not a overwhelming yes, but it's not an overwhelming no. You know, it's kind of middle of the road. Sometimes it's net promoter score. You know, we'll have an accelerator on executive comp. Then I ask the exact same question for employee experience. And usually what they'll say back to me is define that for me, right? Because they'll say something like, um, you know, what is our attrition rate for employees, which is fine, right? And, I, and a little caveat here, everything around comp, DE&I, uh, equity and inclusion, all of those things are very important. I did not cover them in the book. That it falls in that kind of real HR um, fence, if you will. And remember, I'm talking about the connection between employee and customer. Not that it doesn't play a part in their satisfaction and happiness and all of that. So I'm not negating it. It's just I couldn't go that broad on culture. Otherwise, the book would have gotten um, a little muddy. Yeah. So um, back to what I was saying, and I start asking the questions and you'll start to re they start to realize very quickly. They don't have the same level of visibility and insight and rigor on employee experience as they do on customer. So they'll have one or two or they'll be like, I don't know, I have to ask someone from HR like what metrics we're tracking. They'll know the key ones. Like, do we have an attrition problem? Do we have a recruitment problem? You know what I mean? Do we have a comp problem? Like why are people leaving? Like they can, they can answer those questions. But if I lean back and I say, if you have a customer effort score, do you have an employee effort score? If you have an NPS score, do you have an ENPS or employee net promoter score? And you can start to see them all of a sudden go and they'll lean in a little bit. Okay. Now you're talking my language, right? It's a metric. It's ROI. I can see if I spend what I get back. It's a very different conversation if I can get them to embrace the connection between the two and the balance between the two. This is not about customer first or employee first and customer second or employee second or we are customer centric. And, you know, that's a crisis of prioritization. That's an argument I'm not I'm not trying to have. I'm trying to say, let's make sure that we don't leave our employees behind like we have which was then the catalyst for the great resignation and quiet quitting in the US. I mean, employees just didn't wake up one day and be like, you know, we're just all gonna quit in mass. They were just like, this is stupid. Like I'm, you know, I called it the great reflection. Like I, I don't need to be doing this and put up with this. Like the culture is toxic or my manager doesn't support me or they don't give me the right tools. They don't invest in my career. I'm out, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm out. So. I think the pandemic cracked open and shined a light on the lack of investments we've made over the decades to employee, where in many cases, the customer was 
a little bit disrupted, obviously, because of the pandemic, and it could be a lot disrupted, but there was still a lot more infrastructure in place to keep the customer satisfied during that time, not so much for employee. Yeah, it was a, certainly a, a very visible tipping point. And I want to circle back to something you talked about a bit earlier, and uh, you, you talked about this huge investment that's being made in the example of marketing leaders and technology and you know, chasing the, the bright, shiny objects because we're in this time of innovation and all sorts of available systems and tools and technologies to help us get more data, try to interpret the data. There's, so there's all this spending going on, but it seems like there's this very real risk of wasted investment if we don't really optimize and, and really think carefully about what we invest in. Can you talk a little bit about how to avoid wasted investment in, in pursuit of this thing called digital transformation. Yeah. It, there was a great stat actually from Gartner that I started sharing a, a couple months back and it was about digital transformation. And, you know, for those of you listening that are individual contributors, I think you'll relate to what I'm about to say. There's been such a high level of change coming at us for so long tools, the way we work, the impact of the pandemic, um, you know, so many things. And our employers just expect us to take this change with a smile on our face, with the same level of enthusiasm day after day, week after week, month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year. And burnout is real. <laughs> Frustration is real and it manifests itself in you being less than engaged at work. And when you're less than engaged at work, you're less willing to collaborate. You're less willing to go the extra mile for colleagues, uh, teammates. You're less willing to go that extra mile, even sometimes for a customer. Like you're just burnt, you know, it's, it's exhausting. So change is good, but we also need the companies that we work for, the employers to understand you can't absorb all that change as a human and do it well day after day after day after day, right? They're just there. The pace is, is unsustainable. So there was a stat from Gartner that, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong because I'm not looking at them at the moment, but it was pre pandemic. And I want to say, I think it was 2019, the level of willingness for employees to participate, right. in all the change coming at them as it relates to digital transformation was in the 70% range. I think it was like 72. If you're looking at the stat, please correct me, but I think it was, I think it was 72 fast forward to last year. That number is in the high 20% range. So, you know, I think it was a combination, right? Of everything that came at us because of the pandemic, you know, in and of itself, but then working from home for many people required a huge ramp on new sets of skills, right? Digital video conversations, you know, using collaboration tools, you're not sitting next to people anymore, like how there was a lot of things everyone had to learn very quickly. It was a big behavior change, right, of where you work, how you work, who you work with. Some people joined organizations and have never met the team that they're working for or the manager who hired them or anyone from the company they work for. You know what I mean? It was just lots of change. So if you don't have a willingness from your employees to absorb all this amazing change, right? Or digital transformation. Look, it's not lost on me. I work at Salesforce. I mean, that's, I believe we don't sell technology. I believe we sell change and change is hard individually. Imagine doing it across an entire organization. And as it gets bigger, 
the more complex that actually gets. So if your employees are not willing, satisfied, engaged, that is a culture problem. That is a leadership problem, or it's a management problem, right? At the first line manager level, it isn't necessarily a technology problem, right? If they don't feel they can raise their hand and say something's not working because they'll be like, well, no one listens to me anyway, then they just keep slugging along and you get quiet quitting, right? Or they slug along as long as they can until they say I'm leaving, right? So that is a huge um, hindrance to organizations' ability to be resilient, to be responsive, to be more collaborative, to be a great place to work, to be more innovative, and to grow. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, So often we see the application of the wrong fix because maybe the, the true underlying problem isn't understood, and so we we try to bring in the, the the wrong approach, you know, to do that. And so you also talked about earlier, and you, you mentioned this in the book and you added culture, you know, as part of that organization model. And so we have to think about the impact of culture on this journey. If, if focusing on improving employee experience, where have you seen the biggest impact play out there? As it relates to culture? Yeah. You know, I, I'd say that when I start to culture is one of those really funny conversations. I'm trying to work my way through the, at this answer, because in some ways, if you are sitting in front of a leader and you question culture, it is very personal to them because they feel like they've set the tone right mm-hmm. there at the top. Yeah. In the research, we actually asked, what do you think the challenges are for long-term company growth? We asked employees and we asked the C-suite leaders. And employees thought that like leadership vision and values was like out of, I think it was eight or nine, it was like number, number five or six as a challenge for a company growth. But for the C-suite, it was last on the list. Like they just, that is a very, that's like saying, you know, it it is definitely, you know, one of those, it, it, it hits them personally. You have to find a way to have a conversation about culture that isn't about culture, like <laughs> that isn't a reflection of who they are. And so by asking the questions, you start to uncover where there may be blind spots. And, and almost, and this was something I learned as a Gartner analyst over that decade is becoming this master asker is a way to kind of lead the leader or the team right to the water and, and then they have to drink. So what are the questions that can lead them to that water is around things like, tell me how often you survey your employees. And they, you know, pre-pandemic, it might've been, oh, we do an annual survey, which if, you know, that is not enough. <laughs> that is so look back, right? You might have just caught someone on a bad day and it and, and it's going to give you a false positive or false negative. And then it went to sort of, you know, during the pandemic might have been monthly. Now it might be down to quarterly again. But I, I ask, do you survey? And they say yes. And I ask, what do you do with that data, which I'd mentioned a, a few minutes ago? And, then, and sometimes they'll say like, oh, well, you know, we all read it. We read it as an executive team, you know. Okay, well, what what came out of the last survey that you changed? 
oh, I don't know. I'd have to ask my, right. You, then you start to see that that executive is not connected to the employee's experience. And in the US, I just use the TV show Undercover Boss as my masterclass in what not to do. Yeah. It's for those of you who've never watched the show very quickly, you know, it's a CEO of a could be a privately held or a publicly held company. And, you know, they disguise themselves and go and work within their organization somewhere. You know, if it's fast food, they work in the kitchen. If it's, you know, delivery, they'll drive the truck. If it's retail, they'll work at the store, whatever it might be. And then from that experience, they come back and invite those employees to headquarters and say, oh, I'm really the CEO or I'm really the president or whatever. And you taught me that we really need to invest in training or you showed me that, you know, we are setting our employees up to get injured, you know, if they're delivering trucks because we're asking them to pick boxes up off the ground instead of having a lift. Or, you know, we don't have the cleaning crew um, scheduled every day of the week. So our staff has to clean the fast food restaurant. Like I didn't know any of these things. You showed me the light. It's, I just sort of go, I don't know how that's possible, right? Because if you're running a business, how do you not know that's happening? Well, you don't know what's happening if you're running the business off a PowerPoint presentation or Excel spreadsheet. Trust me when I tell you the value statement, the vision on the wall does not show up and help your customer. Your people do. Right. They are the keepers of your brand promise, whatever that brand promise is. And if you don't know what it's like to be your employee, literally answering the answering the phone and doing that return for 20 minutes or delivering that package or serving that burger or checking someone into a hotel or, you know, or taking care of a patient, whatever it might be. Then how could you possibly make the right decision for them technically? So, you know, that is a way to start to help companies, leaders understand that they've got to really get closer to what is the reality of the culture that they have created by the small and large decisions that they've made. Wasn't intentional, right? Could be unintentional. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm trying to shine a light on it, right? Bring the horse to the water. Now you know this information, kind of like Undercover Boss. Now that you know this information, what are you going to do differently? Yeah. So that's where I think there's real great opportunity for change. If you can just be a better asker of these kinds of questions, and it starts to uncover where you may have blind spots. Yeah. The other thing that you've mentioned in the book is if we think about behaviors being a reflection of a particular culture that, well, what impacts behaviors? Well, incentives, like what you incent ultimately reflects on what kind of behaviors you see. And so, you know, decisions even around your incentive systems, you know, and, and making sure that those are aligned and are consistent with, with what you want to see from your vision of culture. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, I will literally ask this question. Um, Do you view your call center, your customer service call center as a cost center? Like, do you say how many people are sitting in there? How many calls per hour? How long do they have to be on the phone? Okay, if they're only on the phone for three minutes, we need 50 people in the call center from eight to noon. We need 75 from noon to three. You know what I mean? Like that whole, it's a numbers game on an Excel spreadsheet, right? You're just plugging in numbers and it's spitting out the other side. How many people you need? And how long can they be on the phone? 
Does that take into consideration how long the customer needs to be on the phone? Does that take into consideration how long the employee actually needs to get done what they are being asked to do because of the systems you've put in place? And so if I'm a customer and that call center agent needs to get off the phone in three minutes, they're going to be like, okay, well, yeah, I can't actually really help you. I'm sorry. Like, there's nothing I can do. The only thing I can say is go on our website, fill out that form. It'll hit our ticketing system. That's the only thing I could do to you. Thanks for calling by. Click. Because they're getting measured by that metric, right? Get off the phone yes. in three minutes. Or are you running your call center as a customer success organization, right? Where it's like a Zappos, which is who I use as an example in the book, where the law, and I'm not suggesting you do this. It's just, it's just a data point and a fun example. But I think the longest customer service call at Zappos, they sell shoes, mind you, was like 10 hours. Yeah, yeah that was <laughs> mind blowing. And I'm not suggesting that you have to have a call center that just chitter chatters with people. But what they don't do is say you only can be on the phone for three minutes. Mm -hmm. yeah. They have extremely high NPS and ENPS scores, right? They have a flat culture where everyone is collaborating and everyone can do each other's job. Everyone you know, shows up for each other. Like the culture there is legendary. There's been books written about it. Tony Shea did an amazing job, you know, may, may he rest in peace. But, you know, ultimately that if you approach it differently, just by that one answer from an executive of cost center or customer success organization, immediately I know if they're over pivoted to customer or if they're balancing employee, right? Because you get a very different answer. I'm not saying costs aren't important and measuring and managing the business isn't important, but I'm saying that can't be the only, you cannot just manage by metric because then what happens is it tells the employees, if you don't like it, you can leave and I'll just replace you because you're a widget in the cog of this machine that's just three minutes on the phone, headcount every eight hours, you know, the calls come in, this is what we do. Like, and the people are just the facilitators of that Excel spreadsheet. They're, they're not delivering anything of value um, that the customer may want. Uh, many years ago, I called into my cellular company. Um, this is many, many years ago, probably 15. And you know, my internet was down and the call center representative was lovely to your point, right? Kind, gracious, lovely. At 29 minutes, the poor guy goes, I have to hang up on you and I will call you back. And for any of you who know when a customer service agent says they'll call you back, it's like you're holding your breath because if they don't call you back, you have to call back and tell yes. someone the story all over again, right? Uh, yes, we've all been there. We've all been there, right? Sure enough, I hang up. He calls me back. At 29 minutes again, he had to hang up and call me back. It was a 90-minute call. And it's not like we were chitter-chattering about the weather. It was 90 minutes of me really trying to troubleshoot and him troubleshooting and us restarting. And it took, you know what I mean? Like we were doing stuff. Why do you think he had to hang up every 29 minutes? He's probably dealing with some sort of a, uh, uh, he's trying to manage his metrics and, uh, you know, either, either that to try to break this into smaller, shorter calls or, or yeah. What did, I don't know if he ever revealed that to you. Well, so I said at the end of the call, I said, I'm sure this will be recorded, right? I said, so whomever is listening to this call, if you are his manager, he was fantastic. But hanging up every 29 minutes, three times is a horrible customer experience because some metric somewhere says that the call center agents cannot be on the phone longer than 30 minutes. So he would have been dinged 
for doing great, amazing service for me. Like maybe he got written up. Maybe if he did that three times, he'd lose his job. But I thought it was an amazing experience. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. What? A, yeah, I think we that that example. It's really vivid. You know, in terms of just the lengths that people will go to based on how they're measured. And, and it goes back yeah. to comp, right? It goes back to incentives. It goes back to I got my name on the top of the list for the best call center agent or the best. You know what I mean? Like. People are motivated by those things. And sometimes like we've got, you could see it all littered across the banking financial services industry when the metrics creates bad behavior, right? I sold loans that, or I gave credit cards for people who didn't say yes, or the example I give in the book, Volkswagen, right? Doing the emission scandal. That was a metric. Get the cars out the door. Like we need the, you know, emissions to be below a certain level so we could sell these cars. We're gonna fudge the numbers. And then they got caught. And sure enough, it was a, it was a culture problem driven by the metrics. Yeah. Well, speaking of metrics, you have shared a wide range of different metrics in the book, examples of what companies are using. If you had a single piece of advice to companies around how they approach measuring employee experience, what would that advice be? I need them to start somewhere. So the fastest way potentially would be look at how you're measuring and what you're measuring for customer and apply it for employee. Understand what you're already doing for employee. And I'm not saying to get rid of them, but then say, how do we make sure that that's creating the right behavior? Kind of what we were just talking about, right? Is it creating the wrong behavior? Um, Because I think that metrics are something that leaders and individuals can get around, right? If I understand what you want me to do, I know how you're measuring me. I understand um, how my role plays a part in the overall business. Like, for example, if you're an executive and you say, we need a net promoter score of 78, everyone go. It's about amazing customer experience. And, and you're in some group and you go, I never talk to customers. Like, how does my role have an impact on a net promoter score? I don't see a line of sight between what I do and NPS. I'm not gonna, I don't care. Everyone has to see themselves in how you're managing the business. And when you say big things and big goals, everyone needs to go, I know my job, my role, what I do every day plays a part in the success of the organization in this way. And this is what I'm given to do that job. And this is how I'm measured, right? And this is how I'm incentivized. And this is how I'm compensated. This is my career plan. This is how I need to invest in my learning, right? They want that kind of understanding. And if they don't get it, that's where you start to see a dissatisfaction rear its ugly head amongst your employee base. And, and then you start to think, see other things trail off, right? Collaboration, innovation, customer experience. And, and it becomes this virtuous cycle of when, when one starts to go bad, the other will eventually uh, feel that impact. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. All right, Tiffany, I want to shift things around here because you give really important advice uh, to companies around the world, but I'm going to flip the script on you. And I want to ask you, what's the best piece of business advice you have ever received? Um, I, I think for me, it is almost, I don't know if it's the best, but it's definitely in the top is that example I gave about trying to convince change or inspire change without having a more 
comprehensive approach, right? Experience, that emotional approach, assumptions people agree on, data people can dig into, you know, and then the totality of that uh, allows you to have much greater impact. I mean, for sure, without a doubt, early in my analyst career versus later in my analyst career, there was a marked difference between my ability to get into the senior levels of some of the, you know, the 50 largest tech companies in the world, you know, preparing for board meetings or product launches. I never would have been in those conversations or even been invited had I not started to round out my ability to use data and storytelling to influence and uh, spark that kind of curiosity to get people to maybe pivot a little bit, maybe not all the way to where I thought, because who knows if I was right or wrong, right? But if I could get them to pivot a little bit, then I was successful. So I'd say that entire exercise with that consulting firm and what I learned out of it, it was not one piece of advice, but it was that whole experience um, that has stayed with me, as I said, for, you know, that was in 2005. That was 2005. So that's how long ago that was. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote down five words, back it up with data. Yeah, that's um, really good. And good, good storytelling. Advice. And good yes. storytelling, right? You Read can have it. great data, but if you can't tell a story, there's a great book by a dear friend, Nancy Duarte, called Data Story. It's, that's actually what it's called. So if you need to tell better stories with data or you have access to data and you're trying to get your managers or your manager's managers or those who work for you or whatever to change behaviors, how to tell better stories through the data so people understand it is absolutely a superpower if you can get that right. Absolutely. And I know you're thinking about the future, Tiffany, all the time. When you do think about the future, what makes you optimistic? Look, I'm inspired daily by how individuals, organizations, profit and nonprofit are using technology for the betterment of the world. And that's a big lofty statement. And it's to some, it may be, you know, airy fairy and apple pie, but whether it's healthcare, whether it's the ocean, whether it's the environment, whether it's um, disabilities, whether it's helping someone here for the first time, walk again, you know, have a surgery that they otherwise could not have, you know, technology is just, there is the amazing part of it. And then there's the not amazing part of it. Right. And I think it's important that we keep a balance there. Uh, we actually at Salesforce have a group called the ethical and humane use of technology. It's an entire part of our product development organization to just always make sure we're developing technology that stays on that side of doing, doing well by doing good and, and not creating technology that maybe has a negative downside. It doesn't mean people won't potentially use it for, for harm, but we don't want to design it for harm, if you will. So I'm just, I'm inspired by that. I'm inspired when I hear stories of, of how and where technology is being used to just transform so much of what we do. But, but the big but here is, you know, there are millions and millions and millions and millions of people who don't have access to the things we do, um, you know, in, in um, developed countries and developed worlds, part of the world. So, you know, it's how do we get this kind of access um, more consistently to places to lift everybody up and just not those um, that had the, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be based on where you were born. 
that you don't have access to these kinds of things. And so that that's what I think I'm, I'm most inspired about. I do a lot um, with the at the UN and at the World Economic Forum around these kinds of topics. And, and that that is just super inspiring to me. Thanks for sharing that. And as we start wrapping up the conversation, Tiffany, do you have a final inspirational piece of advice for leaders that are looking to elevate customer experience, however, along with employee experience? I'd say, look, this is a journey. We've been on the customer experience journey for more than 20 years. This isn't going to happen overnight. But if you listen to this uh, conversation and you paused for a second and wrote something down or thought that you want to investigate something in your own company or even your own career, your own management style, um, then it's been a success. Like that's what this whole goal is. It isn't that everyone's just going to adopt this experience mindset, you know, tomorrow and everything's going to be great. It's, it's going to be a journey again. I hope it doesn't take us as long as it took us to get customer experience uh, a little more mature, if you will. I hope that the maturity cycle um, is, is faster so that we can make sure that our employees are taken care of. The new book is The Experience Mindset, Changing the Way You Think About Growth. Tiffany Boba, thank you so much for joining and inspiring us and getting us to, again, think about how we can focus on employee experience to help elevate customer experience and achieve success we might not ever have thought possible. Thanks again for joining. Thank you for having me. And a reminder to everyone, please continue to give the gift of feedback. Uh, help us make this podcast even better. Go out, rate and review. You can do that on all the major podcast platforms, Apple and Spotify. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.